good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We are nearing the end of this epistle. Nearing the end of our series that we are calling Blessed Assurance because this is an epistle that is intended to give us assurance of the things that we believe, of the things that we know. Chapter 5, let us read verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. And this is the love of God. We keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us into your family. You have caused us to be born from above, to be born again be born of you. We pray that you would help us to see the glory of our newfound relationship with you. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I was born with a birthmark on one of my arms. As I've gotten older, it's faded. I can't see it anymore. I'm sure if we were to go around, each one of us could identify a a birthmark that you have somewhere on your body. You know, some folks have a a very prominent birthmark. I remember there was one dear sister in the Lord, and she had a a birthmark on her face. And in fact, sometimes that birthmark is an identifying mark. If I were to say the name Mikhail Gorbachev, you'd probably have an idea in your mind. Right? He was the one that had the birthmark, right? On the head. It's an identifying mark. And in a similar way, Christians have birthmarks. I'm not talking about something on your body. I'm talking about something spiritual. We've come across a couple of these birthmarks as we've gone through 1 John. If you back up to chapter 2 and verse 29, chapter 2, 29 of 1 John says, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And what John is saying here is, you've been born of God, And as a result, you are practicing righteousness. That you were born of God, and one of the enduring consequences of the new birth is your practice of righteousness. You are seeking to live a righteous life. In chapter 4, in verse 7, we saw this just a few weeks ago. 
For John writes there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, you were begotten of God, and an enduring consequence of that is you love. Again, contextually, it's love for the church, love for one another, the bride of Christ. This morning, our text here in verse 1, we come across another birthmark, and I believe there's yet another still in verse 4. But let me jump ahead here to verse 18. And we'll dig into this more in a couple of weeks, but verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You see, you've been born of God, and an enduring consequence of that is you are seeking to sin less. You are seeking to avoid sin. That is your habitual practice. And that's what's key to each of these texts, is there is an ongoing present reality that is connected to the fact that you have been born of God. You practice righteousness. You love, love one another. There's a practice of love. You avoid sin. There's a practice where you continually avoid sin. And as we come back to our key text this morning, verse 1, it begins, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You were born of God, and an enduring consequence of that is you continue to put your faith and your trust not in yourself, not in a thing, but in a person, Jesus the Christ. Verse 4 says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. You were born of God, and as a result, there's this enduring consequence that you are continuing to overcome the world. And that is a present tense thing. These are the birthmarks that every Christian ought to have. The practice of righteousness, the practice of loving brothers and sisters, the practice of avoiding sin. Continued faith in Jesus Christ and a continual disposition and position where you are overcoming the world. I find it interesting, everyone who believes, this is not a one and done thing. This isn't where you just believe once and now it's all done. You continue, you keep on believing. You continue to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And everyone who does that, brothers and sisters, behold, that's another brother or sister. That's a fellow Christian who believes that Jesus is the Christ. This shows us John is not talking to unsaved people. Not even talking to, to, to unsaved people about how to be saved. He's talking to saved Christians about the reality of their salvation. You've been born of God. You stand begotten of Him as a child of God. And here are the marks. This is what it looks like, a, continu a continued faith in Jesus, belief that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? It means that He is the anointed one of God. And as we've talked about before, we'll continue to mention it, 
the anointed, you anointed prophets, priests, and kings back in the day. And so Jesus is the anointed prophet of God. And this is connected to his capacity of revelation. That he is at once the incarnated word of God. Remember the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he is the supreme revelation of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says in one instance. And that he himself is also the grand revealer. If anyone would come to the Father, it is only through the revelation of the Son and whom he chooses to reveal himself to. Matthew eleven twenty seven tells us. He is the anointed prophet of God. He's also the anointed priest of God. And we've already seen as we've gone through 1 John way back in chapter 2 and verse 2, how he is propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, for the sins of the whole world. That he is at once both the offering, the sacrifice, and of course he accomplishes that on the cross as he dies on the cross for our sins in our place as well. That was our punishment due us and he took it upon himself. But also, he's the priest who ministers daily at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. He's got this eternal priesthood that never goes out of business, that never fails us. This is why he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. He is the eternal great high priest who offers himself in our place. He is, as propitiation, satisfied entirely, exhausted for us the wrath of God. Do us for our sins. He took it upon himself. And so he is the anointed priest, prophet, priest, king. He is the king of kings. And that's superlative language. If you were to gather up all the kings that ever were, are, or ever will be, if you got all of them together, guess who would be king over all those kings? King Jesus. He lives and rules forevermore from his throne in heaven. And if his role as prophet speaks to his role in revelation and his role as priest speaks to his role as a propitiation, then his role as king speaks to the fact that we owe him submission in all things. That we allow him to rule from the throne of our hearts. We submit our will to His will. Indeed, our will becomes lost in His will because that's all we want is the will of our King. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, this is a confession that changes everything. It is a belief that changes everything. If Jesus is your prophet, then He has revealed perfectly, flawlessly, everything that we need for life and godliness. If He is our great high priest, there's, there's nothing you can do to earn your way into the good graces of God. Indeed, if it, it, if it would be grace, you cannot earn it. It cannot be of works. Otherwise, it's not grace. And as our king, that changes our entire life. Again, our faith is in a person. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in ourselves. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone, who's been, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
Again, a birth has taken place. You're now part of the family. And because you have this definitive new birth that has taken place, you cannot be the same as you were before. It is true that there were those who had once made a profession, had once made a claim, but had gone back to a former life. They went out from us to demonstrate they were not of us, John said back in chapter 2. But everyone who has been born of God, that's my brother, that's my sister. And that's significant to the argument that John's making here about loving the children of God in verse 2. You love everyone else who's been begotten of God. How do I know? You've given the birthmarks. Is there a practice of righteousness? Do they love the church? Do they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Uh, Are they seeking to avoid sin in all their life? These are the birthmarks. They give us the assurance that we have been born of God. It is interesting. This is true for everybody. In order for you to live your life, you had to have been born. You doy, right? Of course. (laughs) Of course, for you to live your life, which you do, you had to have been born. Similarly, in order to have lived the normal Christian life, and that's what this is, by the way. That's all John is pointing to is the normal Christian life. Practice righteousness, avoid sin, believe Jesus is the Christ. This is the normal Christian life. To To be able to live that normal Christian life, a birth must have taken place. A new birth, which is one that you are born of God. Everyone who loves the Father, John continues in verse 1. This is, again, a present reality, a present active thing. Everyone who loves, and literally what John writes here, my English Standard Version says, everyone who loves the Father. Everyone who loves the one who gave new birth. He's the begetter, right? You don't birth yourself, okay? It is God who gave birth. It is God who has granted new spiritual life, because that's what's under discussion here with this new birth. Well, everyone who loves, and and so in that way, it does point to his role as the father, and I think that's why you have that translation here. Everyone who loves, and again, it's a present tense thing, you keep on loving the father. You don't stop loving God, the father. So everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. This is another way that John, he's going to say it here in verse 2, love the children of God, and that's, that's, who, that's what's under discussion here. And again, as we've talked about, everyone who's been born of God, well, that's, that's a fellow Christian. Of course I'm going to love them. It would be abnormal for you not to love your brother or your sister. We've already talked at length about this because John has been talking at some length about it in chapter 4. You don't want to be like Cain who hated his brother, he said back in chapter 3. And hatred, as we've defined it, is anything less than love, which would include just a general apathy, a laissez-faire, take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the church. No, that, that's not love. Love is a verb. One writer put it this way, to believe in the incarnation involves birth from God. To be born of God involves loving God. To love God involves loving His children. Therefore, to believe in the incarnation involves loving God's children. 
That's, that's the case John is making here. Do you love the church? As, as we're reminded from time to time, aren't you glad to be a Christian? Well, part of being glad to be a Christian is being glad you get to love your brothers and sisters. Verse 2, by this we know. Again, John, he's all about knowledge and faith. But one is not exclusive to the other. And we've, we've talked about that. And we've seen that as we've gone along. And so we know this is, again, assurance. John, he doesn't want us walking around question marks because God doesn't want us walking around as question marks. We're exclamation points because we know that we love the children of God. By the way, the knowledge that John is talking about here has to do with experiential knowledge. You experience this knowledge because it's, again, connected to real life as a Christian. Loving the children of God. Again, these, these are your brothers and sisters. This is everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Loving the children of God. Again, love has a very definite definition. Love is the desire, the overarching desire to see Christ formed in another person. Specifically here, it is a fellow child of God. You desire to see Christ formed more perfectly, more fully in your brother or your sister. That is love. Which, by the way, that definition, which is what John is talking about here, does exclude every other definition and demonstrates the folly of the contemporary expression that love is love. That, that is foolishness. Not all love is love. In fact, there are some love are tantamount to hatred. No, we seek Christ to be formed more perfectly in the heart and mind of our brothers and our sisters. That is what it means to love the children of God. And by the way, we're to love our neighbor, same thing. Overarching desire <clears throat> to see Christ formed in them. To see them become a Christian, in other words. This is how we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. Again, a present reality. We keep on loving God. We don't stop loving God. Again, it's not a once and done thing. You continue to love God. And, and what does that love look like? Obey His commandments. I've said it before, I'll continue to say, you want to know God? Obey Him. You want a deeper relationship with God? Obey Him. And notice, obey His commandments. What commandments, John? What commandments are we talking about here? <clears throat> well, we've covered a, a number of them as we've gone through this epistle. How about walk in the light as He is in the light? How about walk as Jesus walked? How about practice righteousness? And of course, contextually here, how about loving one another? These are the commandments. And <clears throat> John's going to say this. They're not burdensome. Verse 3. I know there are some who take a legalistic approach to the commandments of God, and, and in that way they do become burdensome. But that is not God's design, and not, nor His intention when it comes to His giving commandments. His commandments, in the first place, are for our benefit. They're for our good. They're the guardrails in life. While you read in wisdom literature that there is a good path that you are to walk upon, all other ground is, is shifting sand. You, you 
dig into the so-called wisdom and philosophy of our age, and you quickly realize that it is, it is a, 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 there's no foundation to it. In fact, it, all it is, is is quicksand, and it collapses in on itself. The secular wisdom of today is such that it has both feet firmly planted in midair. It is of such a nature, they don't even realize, in order to build their own worldview, inconsistent as it is, they have to borrow from our Christian worldview to have any significant meaning or to even know anything. And that's because ultimately God is the root and the foundation of all knowledge. In Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says in Colossians 2 and verse 3. There's your starting point. <clears throat> That's also the root for all these commandments. The Creator knows better. He knows what's best for His creatures. Both redeemed and unredeemed creatures. Both saved and lost folks. Even if fallen, unregenerate humanity just follows what God has prescribed in His Word, things would go better for them. Tragically, what happens is they take what they cannot not know, because everybody knows there is a God, He's immensely powerful, and all these things. They take that knowledge and they stifle it, they suppress it, they shove it down, they they seek to suppress it in their unrighteousness so that they can continue more in their unrighteousness. What ends up happening is they become kind of like the child who covers their eyes and you can't see me, you can't see me, right? Not realizing you didn't just turn invisible. We can still see you. And, well, the emperor has no clothes, as it were. They're not burdensome. Again, it's not God's design to be a, a Debbie Downer, to rain on our parade, or any of that. His commandments are for our good. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've been caught up in the rat race of this life, wearing yourself out, chasing your own tail. Only Christ can give you rest. You can try and find it in everything else that's out there in the world. You're never going to find it. It'll only leave you more empty and more hollow than you began. Only Christ can give you this rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. Listen, my burden is light. It is not burdensome, and that's the nature of the commandments of God. <clears throat> they are not burdensome. They're not grievous, another way that could be understood. But rather, it is that easy burden and that light yoke. When our will is united with God's will. We will find obedience is not taxing. Rather, it is a delight. It is a joy to obey our Father's commands. 
verse 3 begins, for this is the love of God. And what's under discussion here is our love for God. I think that's what John is talking about here with the love of God. Well, it's, it's our love for God. Remember, verse 2 says, when we love God. Well, uh, the believer's love for God, that, again, it, it's our love for Him. And we do love God. Well, what is that love? His commandments. Now, that's what love for God looks like. Again, we, we obey Him. One writer put it this way, love for God is not an emotional experience so much as a moral commitment. Don't get me wrong. There certainly ought to be emotion involved with our relationship with God. That's not the primary emphasis of love. It's not just warm, fuzzy, ooey-gooey, rich and chewy type feelings all the time. It's a moral commitment that we make to God. What is a... A life, that, a life that is lived that loves God, well, it is one that is an obedient life. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. <clears throat> Again, here's, here's the power of the new birth. It changes us right down to our nature. We receive the Holy Spirit of God who enables us to do the things that we have seen throughout this. And we, again, we notice here, everyone who has been born of God, that's the, the past completed action with these enduring consequences. And one of those enduring consequences is you overcome the world. Here's another birthmark. You keep on overcoming the world. The term that's used here by, by John, it, it is a verb, and uh, it's actually related to our English word, Nike. You know, the, the, the shoe brand, the swoosh, just do it. Nike, back in their day, she was the, the Greek goddess of victory. No wonder Nike wanted that name, right? It's victory, right? You wear our shoes, you're going to win. But here John is saying, no, no, no. There's only God, the one true and only God, who can give you the victory. No other God on the planet, so-called, no other little g God is able to give you victory. In fact, they only bring with them more defeat, more feelings of shame and loss. But God is able to give us the victory. One person has said, that it's like, the, the, like Christians are wearing Nike shoes on which they're outrunning the devil in the world. That's the nature of our overcoming, our victory. And this is important because the world, as John has used it and as he's using it here, well, he's given us uh, a definite description of it back in 2 and verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from God, but is from the world. This is the world that we overcome. It's not from God. It's everything that is opposed to God. He goes on there in, the, in verse 17 to say, yeah, that world, it's passing away. It's going out of business. It's got a shelf life. Now, don't get me wrong. It lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world 
lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 19 of chapter 5 says, but make no mistake, this is the victory. And uh, it's uh, the same word there for, for victory, as it's translated, is the same word for overcome. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Now it's a little different. The first overcoming in verse 4 is a present reality, and we are overcomers. But then here, at the end of verse 4, this is a past tense thing, a snapshot event in the past. Has overcome the world. And, and this points to something we've talked about before, the already and the not yet. That there is a sense in which we already taste and experience the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus because of what He did on the cross. But there's another aspect where, of the not yet where we are continuing to overcome this world. The victory has already taken place, and we know this because Jesus Himself said it is finished on the cross. And so, as we are united with Christ, we experience His victory. His victory becomes our victory. And then as we live our lives in this world, there are times when we must overcome through our faith. This is the victory, even our faith. As we continue to believe and we continue to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are overcomers. Boy, this is vital for our context, for our time. As the world, again, it is increasingly hostile to the things of God, increasingly hostile to the Christian worldview. I haven't heard about all the details escape me at the moment. There was a school district that has now outlawed Christians teaching particular things in the classroom. They don't want Christians doing that. I think about our brothers and sisters up in Canada, which is a subjugated people. They just don't realize it yet. Pastors of churches arrested because they felt it necessary to meet during the shutdowns. I think about our brother over in Philadelphia who was arrested because he was praying outside of a Planned Parenthood facility. I think charges have since been dropped. And this is just in a Western context. We know about our brothers and sisters the world over in communist-controlled China, the things that our brothers and sisters are experiencing there where they have to go to concentration camps, get re-educated by the state. You are aware of this, yes? These are our brothers and our sisters here. And yet, by faith, they're overcomers. They've overcome the state. They've overcome the religion of secularism. And they continue to overcome. If it were against the law to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you, my brothers, my sisters? That's the question you have to answer. But when we are sitting in the re-education camps together, let us remind one another that we are the overcomers. And it's because of our faith. Our faith. Notice, it's a singular faith. 
But this is a collective thing. We all unite under the banner of Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. And that, of course, means that Caesar is not. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that keeps on overcoming? It's, a, again, a present reality thing. He says here, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is tied directly back to verse 1. Jesus is the Christ. John has been making these uh, confessional statements, if you will. That's what they are. What do you believe? I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. These were fighting words back in their day. Because, again, it brought the Christian at odds with the culture and the society in which they lived. I think very quickly they are becoming fighting words in our own context. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was more than just a man, more than just a good man or a wise man, that he was actually God in the flesh, who lived a sinless life that I could never live, nor could you, went to a cross in my place for my sins, that he did die on that cross and was buried. But three days later, by the power and glory of the Father, he was raised and he lives forevermore. And he is at the right hand of the Father where he lives and rules forevermore. And he will come again. One more thing. We believe. That's a present tense thing. We continue to believe. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's a present reality as well. He is. Not just was. He is the Son of God. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to that question is the most important thing. John has been careful to outline who he is throughout this epistle. And also, John, again, writing to Christians, has been careful to point out the birthmarks as we've gone along. <laughs> that because of the new birth that has come to us by, means of the, uh, by way of the Father, that He is the one who has begotten us, we can never be the same. John has pointed out how we ought to live the normal Christian life in light of our new birth. And so, my brothers and my sisters, how are you living these days? That's the exhortation from the Apostle John, right into these Christians who were shaken because of, well, someone out from us. They're, they're not with us anymore. Shaken by the philosophy of their day, Gnosticism, which was seeking to become Christianized very quickly. And indeed, in just a few short decades, would be thoroughly uh, Christianized, or should I say Christianity, a particular strain of Christianity would be thoroughly Gnosticized. A guy was going to come and mix those two things together in a very seductive and slick way. And John here, prophetically, is saying you can't do that. And it's an exhortation for us today as well. You can't mix the philosophy of this world with its secularism and its humanism and its materialism, 
You can't mix that with Christianity and hope to be anywhere near consistent. It will collapse under its own weight. The good news is, everything you need has been thoroughly provided for in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Let us pray. We do praise you, O God, for the Son of your love, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, yours is the glory. Hallelujah, amen.